Hello and welcome to Book Nation. I'm Chris Stevens. I'm Nell Coakley. And today we have a really cool and very chatty, <laughs> in a good way, chatty guest. We have Rich Rubino with us today. I am so looking forward to talking to him. Are you really? I read I read his book, um, and it's it's fascinating and it's so much fun. And it is got fun. like a lot of presidents, a lot of history, a lot of great quotes, a lot of fun, fabulous. So Rich is a local author. He is from Marblehead, grew up in Marblehead, and he has written four books actually, and they're all political, but they're all like bizarre facts of political life and what is it? The political like great quotes. Yeah, there's the American Bible. Um, or this his latest book is American Politics on the Rocks. Um, he has the political Bible of little known facts in American politics. Um, the Bible. The Political Bible of Humorous Quotations from American Politics. He's going to have to broaden out. Maybe he'll have to get delve into European politics. Well, he's also got that um, that really interesting book about the Electoral College. Yes. Which and we're going to have to like, really ask him about because that's become such like fascinating. It's such a hot issue. I was going to ask him. I'm not sure when it came out, but it may be time to reissue it. So Chris and I normally do our, um, our book news at the top of the segment. But today, we're just really, we just have a lot to talk to Rich about. And I'm... He is just a political font of information and trivia. He is. He can spout statistics and and facts, candidates and facts. I mean, just give him a date, and he is off and running. It's it floors me every time I talk to him. <laughs> so we're gonna have a fun hour with Rich. So unfortunately, so we're forgoing oh, the book news. Yeah, he, for, is for, he is our book news. He is our book news and his wonderful book. So we will be right back with uh, Rich Rubino. Hey, welcome back to Book Nation, and we are here with our very special guest, Rich Rubino. Yeah, Rich is a local Marblehead author. He has written four books. I was going to give you credit for five, <laughs> but there were five, but he has written I'll four take books. That. <laughs> and they're, they're all political based, right? They yes. all have a political theme. What is that all about? <laughs> um, so tell us about it. How did you, how did you start writing about politics? Well, I've had a congenital interest in the American political process going back to growing up. I've always was um, kind of a, an inveterate C-SPAN watcher. Um, I've always... <laughs> C-SPAN, too. That's like... I found it dry sometimes. <laughs> I mean, that's like... I found it exciting for some core, reason. I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> I got interested in it as a kid, and I remember being interested in all the presidents and as kind of kid. memorizing them in order. Yeah, absolutely. For some reason, I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. It just kind of... I was going to say, were your parents really political? Not or? at all. Not yeah. at all. No, it just kind of thrust upon me. Like, who there, like, is this child? <laughs> was there like political talk at the table? Never, never, really. never, never. They had no interest whatsoever. Hmm. And um, maybe that's what turned turned you on to it because you were like, um, I thought it was illicit. <laughs> I, I really need to talk about politics. I guess that's possible. It was just a fascination I had, and I was interested in all the presidents and memorizing them and watching the coverage and particularly some of the arguments. So, but basically, I was always interested, specifically in presidential trivia. And yes. as when I got older, I was looking for books that were about more political trivia. And I went out looking for a book that was about political stories, that type of stuff. And there were plenty of books about presidential trivia. Most of them were one or two lines. They'd yep. be a book of one or two lines, maybe a picture. Um, but I kind of exhausted those. So I was looking for something that was political trivia, and I couldn't find anything like that. And it kind of put the thought into my head. And I got this ideation of to write a book about interesting political facts in history that I had known. Now, had you already come across? Had you sort of been stockpiling? That in my had, head, yes. I've head? not thought okay. I've been. I hadn't been writing them down, but I just had, you know, uh, panoply of these in my head. Wow. 
And um, so then it was a matter of trying to confirm them. Um, which was a long process. I was saying, that must have been a huge process, trying to say, okay, I remember this happened, I remember reading this, but actually having to track it down and confirm like, it. When did where it do you, happen? Yeah, where do you start really with yeah, Especially well, the more historical ones, because you've got some... Yeah. You go back. You oh, go yeah. Back. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, there's the internet today, so you can certainly go and you can certainly find. And lots of times, it's funny, because the first book was about political story, just some background, and the second book I did after that one was about political quotes in American history, because the first one... I got so many questions when I did a book tour about the political quotes, and there were maybe 10 or 11 quotes in there, and I thought that was interesting to write a book about that. And then after writing a book about the Electoral College, the fourth book was about um, politi- was about just kind of interesting stories in political history. But in terms of confirmation, it's interesting because one thing we have is there are so many primary sources on the Internet today. Sure. So you can go back and you can see a New York Times article from 1923. Yeah. Wow. And when you're looking back on those articles, you find other things. Yeah. Like, for example, sure. great example, I remember, re- I, remember I was look- trying to look for something about, something about Warren G. Harding. And I found it, but then I found a little clip. At, there's a little clip right next a to it. Extra something about Warren G. <laughs> I know it's he's he's huge these days. It's a huge a huge fan club. The ladies love him. Yes, sure. <laughs> he was a newspaper man actually. Really, I, don't I didn't know that. that. No. He was. He was. Uh, he came from a newspaper family. He was a newspaper uh, publisher actually. Um, I need to read more about him. <laughs> so I was looking for something on him specifically, and I found this little uh, clip on the on the on the on the right hand side, and it said, "White House chef is not a man." And I saw a picture, and I said, "What?" And yeah, what? today they would say, "Today it would be something." If it was the first woman chef, it would have said, "The first woman chef." Yes. But the way they okay. talked well, like in 1923, they did. When, when it was. Chris, I don't remember her last name, but she she was the first female quote unquote White House chef. Well, this one said, "The White House chef is not a man." So I looked at it, and I just thought, "That's fascinating." Yeah. So I got a, so I I got a picture of it, and I put that in the book. Another example, I was looking for something about Hubert Humphrey in 1968, and I found a Delaware paper, and there was a little clip right there about the mayor. Uh, about the mayor in a small town in Delaware who talked about um, kissing and how Republicans were better kissers than Democrats. Oh, my God. So <laughs> I, I said, that, that's, that's got to go in there. something that we'd be talking about today. Right? It's been lost in his, lost to history, but <laughs> I figured that's got to be in there. So that's what's interesting. You're, you're, um, like you said, it's about politics. It's not just sort of famous politicians. And it's not about, right. and it's not about, uh, it's not bipartisan. Yes, it's, it's it, bipartisan. Oh, yeah, nonpartisan, yeah. Non-partisan, we yeah. mock both sides. Rich mocks both sides. Absolutely. Send all your letters to Rich. <laughs> <laughs> so, so who, um, who are the? Who, I was going to say who are the most bizarre. Which are the ones? Which are the presidents you found sort of the most fascinating facts about? Yeah, I think. Well, in terms, I think Lyndon Johnson would be one. Really? Um, okay. It's funny. Oh, I love Lyndon. Johnson. <laughs> yes. Only because Lyndon Johnson has some of the best quotes because he was just he would just say whatever was on his mind. Well, it's fascinating because lots of time in public he had a very kind of dour demeanor. But in private, he had a very arresting personality, and it's fascinating because Johnson. I mean, he's 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 a great president to fo- to, co- to cover and to follow because they have all of his fo- all of his um, private conversations because okay. they recorded yeah, them all. They recorded everything. That's right. So you can actually listen to what he was saying, and you can say you can say, well, like I did, like for example, um, in 1968, Hubert Humphrey was asked him who his running mate should be, and he said, you need somebody who's going to be. He specifically, he was talking about Daniel Inouye, who was the governor, then later senator from Hawaii. And he said, "You need somebody. You need him on the ticket." And he suggested that he he would have been the first Asian. This was in 1968. You would have had an Asian American on the Democratic wow. ticket. And Humphrey was saying, "Well, a conservative country doesn't know if we're really ready for this." But I mean, you listen to these huh. conversations, you're like, "Wow, this is 1968." Yeah. Um, he had, yeah, you're right. He had some great quotes. Um, for example, I remember the, one quote that I love that I love from him. He talked about um, I, I talked about there was a public execution in Texas. And the and the sheriff said, "You have five minutes to say whatever you want to the people here watching. And what would you like to say?" 
The guy says, I have nothing to say. So somebody raises his hand in the back of the room. He says, yes. He says, well, if he's not going to say anything, I'd like to take his five minutes. I'm a candidate for Congress here in, the, here in Texas. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I would, if I were the guy that was, you know, about to well, die, I'd be like, yeah, no, you don't care about <laughs> It's funny because I was, I was reading through Rich's uh, latest book, which is American Politics on the Rocks, The Bizarre Side of American Politics. And he has, like, some of my favorite Lyndon B. Johnson quotes. And there's the one where he was uh, getting measured for his – you know the one I'm talking yes, about, Yes, right? I can say this on Tayer. I don't know if you can. I can try. I guess you could say, well. We he, can beep it out, I guess. He was, he was being measured for a pair of pants. Yes. And he was talking about how he needed extra room. Yes, I do, I do remember that one, actually. <laughs> no, and, if you, and if you Google this online, you can actually hear, hear him say hear it. Hear him yes. say it. It's most, one of the most hilarious. I about cracked up laughing. I think I We're going to have to find that. 1964. Rich's book, wow. book is big, and it fell on my face because I was laughing so hard. Like, I, I, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe he found He had a very crude hard. personality. And he it's would sit on the can, and, and for those of you, he would sit on the toilet and have meetings. Cabinet like, meetings, yes. Yes, he would. It's hilarious. And the funny thing is, when you listen to him give his speeches, he's so dry, yeah. and he's looking down. Just listen, listen to any speech of him giving a State of the Union. He, you know, he's reading a speech, and you're like, this is really boring. And then you listen to him, it's a completely different personality. I think basically he was taught that in public you have to be very presidential. You have to be kind of boring. So I kind of feel like Bob Dole was like that. Oh, well, absolutely. When Bob Dole ran for president, could there have been anybody more boring? The minute he lost... He was like the funniest guy in the world. I'm like, where was that dude? I would have voted for you. He went. It's funny. He went on. Um, John Kerry. John Kerry. It's a little bit dry. Well, yeah. a few things about in terms of Bob Dole. Bob Dole always had a great. Was known as having a great sense of humor, also a temper. And yes. in 1988, he had a huge rivalry with Jack Kemp when they were yes. running for the Republican yeah, nomination. I that, they yeah. later became on the same ticket, which is kind of ironic in 1996. <laughs> but Jack Kemp, Jack Kemp had a quote about Bob Dole saying that um, the Bob Dole Presidential Library will only have one, only have two books. One of them's a coloring book. <laughs> <laughs> and Bo- I know someone else we might say that. About. <laughs> <laughs> and Bob Dole, it's interesting what he would say. Well, Jack Kemp, what he what happened is a lot of his supporters would go to Dole rallies and they'd say, "How come you voted for all these tax increases? How come you voted for all these tax increases?" So one of them was in the Hampshire one time and Dole was going and he's walking through and he sees somebody and someone's heckling him and he goes check back into your cave <laughs> yeah but okay. he had he had a great sense of his, his or his characterization is Chuck Schumer and this was when Chuck Schumer was just a member of the House of Representatives he wasn't even a senator they didn't serve concurrently in the in the Senate and he said the most dangerous place in Washington is between Chuck Schumer and a television camera <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That is funny. do you have like a favorite do you have like a favorite one of these quotes or, or stories that like your go-to, like, this is my favorite one. Yeah, there were a couple. Um, one of them is there was a congressman named Gene Taylor from Bluxy, Mississippi. And Bluxy, Mississippi is a very conservative area. And he's a Democrat that gets elected in a congressional district that goes 69% for Bush. Wow. So he's a very conservative Democrat. So, just, so they're all, every election they're gunning for him because as soon as he retired, they know that there'd be, a, there'd be a Republican in that seat. So Americans for Tax Reform issued a press re- issued a release saying that Gene Taylor had said this was back in 2010 that he was sympathetic to the Affordable Care Act aka Obamacare. So Taylor issued a press release from issued a press release calling them lying sacks of scum and said anybody who li- anybody who knowingly repeats this is also a lying sack of scum. Um, he ended up losing that race actually, but I thought that was fascinating just the kind of the candidness and the other one that I yeah. point out all the time is another southerner Marion Barry. Not the not to be confused with not the, the ma- with the, the mayor DC, of Washington yeah, yeah. D.C., but there was one in there was a congressman in Arkansas named yes. Marion Barry in the 1990s. Actually, Robert Marion Barry, and he there's an, another congressman. So he was also he was a Democrat. and There's a co- Republican named Adam Putnam, 
And Putnam accused the blue dog Democrats, who the conservative Democrats, of not favoring a balanced budget. So Adam Putnam had, very, had red hair. He was literally about 30 years old, very young congressman from Florida. And Marion Barry gets up and defends the blue dogs, defends himself personally, and says, and I don't want to listen to some howdy doody looking Nimrod. And I mean, I remember watching that live oh, on C-SPAN. Oh, yeah. story. Yeah. Yes, yes, I love that because that was just so. It was just so candid. Like you would never expect somebody to yeah. say that. No, no. When you're looking yeah. and you're like, oh my gosh. And then Adam Putnam says, I expect. I, you know, gave a very gave a speech and he said, um, you know, I, ex- I respect the gentleman's passion, but we can't use name calling and kind of tried to, you know, um, tried to get over it that way. But then you look at a picture of him and you're like, wow. He really yeah, does look like Howdy Doody. Really <laughs> do you so when when you're like watching the news, do you sit and think, I have to write that one down, because I did this whole the whole story about did you hear was it they were talking about was it Coldplay it was a band recently that they had this whole thing this whole discussion about they stopped what they were talking about. Um, Who is this? It was in Congress. It was oh, recently. Okay. It was recently some discussion that they were having, and they said. It was Nickelback, and they said something like, "You have as many, you know, potential fans of Nickelback." And the senator actually stopped. They stopped the whole conversation. They had this whole thing about Nickelback, and then they <laughs> kept going. And my only thought through that, because I had seen Rich's book, was like, "Somewhere Rich is writing this down." <laughs> <laughs> but, do you, so do you do that? Do you say to yourself, you know, there's a there's one. I got to You know, it's fascinating. I just I was just the other day I saw Steve Bannon, the former Trump advisor, kind of who was seen the architect of the Trump campaign basically, and he was being interviewed by Anderson Cooper. This was on Wednesday night. Um, this was in mid-March or Mar- late March rather. And he was interviewed and he kept using the and he kept using the term um, the term um, measure the term measurelia which I had never heard before, and he used it like seven times. Hmm. And I kept listening to it, and I'm like, marginalia, marginalia, I'm sorry, marginalia. That's not a word. And I'm like, wow, and I'm like, I had heard it before. I know it means kind of like on the margins, but I never heard it used that way before. And he just kept using it, and he kept using it more. And every sentence, he would use the word marginalia. And I was like, this is going to be fascinating. Word <laughs> but I was like, did, I was thinking, like, did he think? Did he plan to use this word that many times? Was did he go in there with talking points? I'm going to put, I'm going to popularize this word. Head. Yeah, maybe that was it. <laughs> but then I think about it, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's something that's fascinating that he would use that, and it's just kind of sticks in my head. I'm sure yeah. other people. I mean, if I was working for a late night show, I would definitely get all the, get that tape and say, you know, this guy went, looked at a thesaurus. You know, <laughs> it's like. <laughs> it's cool. That's bad. Do you still watch C-SPAN? Oh, all the time. Yeah. I know. Chris and I are just I like, oh. It can, so, it can I, be fascinating. It can be. I, it can be. Actually. I have one. that. Okay, so this is the one that I really liked in the book, and it's about our own Ed Markey. Oh, yeah. Okay, so he knows what I'm talking about. Yes. So I'm going to read this, and then Rich, we're going to talk to Rich about this. But it, he titles it Fast Eddie. We're talking about Ed Markey when he was fair. I look at this photo. I right? know. He's super young. Yes. He and still he, looks pretty he, young he at was, 70. He's a handsome guy. Yeah. <laughs> so it says, in 1975, Massachusetts State Representative Ed Markey, a member of the House Judiciary Committee, led the charge in passing legislation to end the practice of allowing state judges to be associated with law firms while serving as judges. Markey shepherded the legislation through the House to end this practice. Governor Michael Dukakis signed the legislation. However, House Speaker Thomas McGee was vociferously opposed to the legislation and kicked Markey off the committee. Markey's desk was placed in the hall. Markey, (laughs) a congressional candidate, stood in front of the desk in a political television advertisement and said, the bosses can tell me where to sit, but nobody tells me where to stand. And he won the congressional seat. Yes. I I was like, I I love that because I, you know... I know Ed Markey, so I think it's just sort of, I was just like, wow. 
Well, it's fascinating. Be- I don't picture Ed doing that anymore. <laughs> well, it's it, it's fascinating. First of all, this is the McGee. This isn't the one that's a Mayor Lynn, the former state senator. No, no, this no, is the father. This is the father who, who was speaker, who's very autocratic, yes. had that reputation. Very. He was hardcore. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And it's fascinating because Ed Markey now is seen as essentially a career politician. Right, but at yeah. the time, he basically advertised himself as very much a tribune of his constituents of the people. And he was in the state legislature at the time. And that's how he kind of separated himself because he was running against the bosses. Um, now he's seen, I mean, he's seen, you look at him almost a scarlet E for establishment, but he really presented himself. the dean of the. Dean of the Massachusetts the, delegation. The, the, yeah. Because people look back and, you know, he's been in essentially before, essentially since, since he was in his 20s, he's been in public life. But he was in the state legislature and he was basically a rebel. And he used that to run, to run a successful congressional race. Um, and it's such a great, it's a great tactic and it's yeah, and it's a great quote. It's like such a great political campaign. And it's interesting too, because in Massachusetts, there was, I mean, you had the same thing when Tom Fennerman was speaker, for example, you have the more liberal wing of the party and then you have a concern, you really in Democrat in Massachusetts, almost anyone who at the time there was very conservative, um, Democrats with Republicans in many other parts, almost like Southern Democrats in Massachusetts, very much urban ethnic, mostly in the cities. And then you had some more, um, usually suburban, even though Ed Markey wasn't necessarily suburban, but you had a more liberal constituency, more like the National Democratic Party. Right. And Ed Markey was part of the more National Democratic, the more liberal bloodline, and he took on the conservative bosses. Um, very similar to what happened, for example, when, remember when Doug Peterson was in the state legislature, yeah. and Tom Finneran um, was angry for his support for um, for campaign finance reform, and there was an argument that he'd taken off of it, that he was t- that he t- had lost the chairmanship of the Natural Resources Committee, and whether that was whether that was the case or not. Um, but that was just Doug Peterson was trying to take on the bosses. It was very similar to what was happening with Ed Markey. And in terms of the term "fast Eddie," that's actually what he's called by some of his colleagues in the Senate. James Inhofe, the senator from Oklahoma, really? who's the who's the very who's his basically opponent on just about everything, especially climate change, which is Ed Markey's big issue. Um, that's He's what he calls him. He's up on cable, I think. That's what he, yes, yes. <laughs> he gave up. Telecommunication, that's, but that's what he calls him. He oh, calls no, him Fast Eddie as a joke, so that's where I got that idea for Fast Eddie. I loved it. I was just yeah, like... Yeah, that was good. I mean, cause I it, think, sh- it shows him in a different light than I think people think of him well, today. Well, he's the only person in this book that I know. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, not that I know, like, you know, oh, I don't know who this person is, but I mean, on like a personal level, like I've met him. Yes, I yes, him, yes. So it's kind yes. of like, I was just, I never knew that about him. Well, I'd never seen that photo of him. Well, yeah, Dukakis, a fascinating story about him. Um, a couple fascinating. One of them was Barney Frank. And this is yeah. another example of the two wings in the Democratic Barney Party. Frank. When, when Dukakis was his first term in governor, uh, as governor, he made a lot of really arduous, hard budget cuts. And the liberal wing of the Democratic Party went nuts on him. And one of those was Barney Frank, a very young, co- a very young member of the state legislature. Sure. And somebody asked him, a reporter asked him, they said, well, but part of the issue was Dukakis would take the subway. He was known for taking the subway to his office. And yes. some people said that he should be taking, you know, he should be in a limo, that this wasn't prestigious enough. And somebody said to Barney Frank, they said, does it bother you that, he's taking this, that he takes the subway uh, to the corner office every day? Frank responds, he says, no, it doesn't bother me that he takes a subway. It bothers me that he gets off at the statehouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. And then Frank, in that election, when he was running for, Dukakis was running for his first re-election in 78, actually supported his primary opponent, Barbara Ackerman, who was a Cambridge city councilor who got 6.25% of the vote in that race. And part of it, and then Ed King, who was, a conser- who was more conservative than Mike Dukakis, squeaked through and actually defeated um, and actually defeated Mike Dukakis in that race. And later on in life, King was so conservative that he, he in that election, he ran against Frank Hatch, who was the minority leader in the, in the Massachusetts State Senate. And later in life, and Hatch was the Republican nominee, and later in life, Hatch became a Democrat 
and King became Republican. How does Rich keep all this in his head? I know, that's what I wonder. I'm like I fascinated know. listening to him. Like, how does he keep all this I, stuff I know. in his head? Are you going to become the next historian? Or are you going to start writing, you know, keep, well, you do the political history. Maybe a biography of Snooki. <laughs> Maybe a biography of Snooki. <laughs> Just to change it up a bit. So we asked you, so um, I asked you who sort of was the easiest one to find stuff about. Who was, a, was there one politician? Oh, Kim Jong-un made the book. Who is there anybody that that escaped? Is there a president that you don't have? Did you have a list? I think. Well, no, I didn't. You have a list. Wait, okay, got one for Washington. Got one. Got one for Obama. Zachary, I think Zachary Taylor escaped. The only issue with him, he wasn't particularly funny in person. There was an issue after his death about how he had died, and then in 1991 they exhumed the body. The grave, yeah. The grave, yeah. That was he, but there was no issue about him, specifically about his personality. He was in from 1849 to 1850, then he died. Um, he was in for, they called, him, they called him old, rough, and ready. He was known, you know, he was, yep. a, um, yep. he, was a, he was a Mexican War veteran, and that's how we basically came to the presidency. But he was also the first presidency, president from the, from the, from the South to be elected, um, rather the last one, until 1976 when Jimmy Carter got elected. But in terms of his personality, there really wasn't much there. He's just not a poor guy. He's <laughs> sort of dry kind of guy. Yeah, because I'm looking through, and you've, you've got he I takes mean, everybody. Washington. Yes, I love that he takes everybody. He's sort of got the presidents. He's got the first ladies. Yes, yes. Do you have a whole section in here on first ladies? Yep. You? My yeah. favorite, where the most interesting, I think, was actually probably Betty Ford. Um, a couple of things about oh, her. Really? Well, a couple of things about Betty Ford. Was she sauced with <laughs> oh, I wasn't no. going to go down that way. <laughs> I, 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 I was um, Well, that's another angle. But, well, for one thing, she was um, – she was this before we – I don't know if anyone knows, but before we had social media – People actually communicated in other ways, <laughs> and one of yeah. those, one of them was CB. Was, I don't believe one it. of them was CB radios. I do. Know CB <laughs> I have heard the Breaker story. Breaker yeah. sixteen, and one, and she. This was nineteen seventy four to nineteen seventy seven, and all the truckers were talking on it, and so she got in in the White House and started actually going on and talking to the truckers, and her slogan was, um, or her um, her handle, what they used to call it back in the day, was yes. First Mama. <laughs> I had no idea she did that. That's and she also appeared on. She actually appeared on a Mary Tyler Moore show too. Really? Yes, she's. I don't think I knew. I that. have a picture in the book where she's talking, where she's sitting there with the producers, and right. Mary Tyler Moore's there. I did know that her son Stephen King was on the Young and the uh, yes, Stephen yes. Ford was on the Young and the Restless yes, for that quite I a think while. I knew. Yes, I used to watch Young and the Restless. And then, so that, she that's came, how I yes. know. I was like, oh, I didn't know he was the president's son. Yeah, she was somebody who I found who I found rather um, who I found rather fascinating because you know when she was there was another issue too when she was interviewed on sixty minutes and basically suggested that she had supported um, abortion rights in some cases. You know, Gerald Ford later said, "I think you just cost us twenty million votes." <laughs> because, yeah, I do. Really, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Okay, so did Jerry Ford? I always sort of debate this with my husband because I always. I always say how clumsy he was. He's like the guy fell down the steps one time, and for the rest of his presidency, yeah. Oh, a fast. Yeah, he was clumsy, wasn't he? Well, and, you know, he made that, and then the other thing he did was at a golf course and he hit spectators. Course, yes. But it's really ironic that that's what people think of him: to Chevy Chase falling down. Right. Okay. Well, he was, this was somebody who played at the University of Michigan, who was the center for the football team, yeah, probably the most athletic like really president athletic. ever. He was actually got offered offered contracts by the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> And the Detroit Lions. Wow. He turned them down. I didn't know that. He turned them down and went to law school at Yale, where he was assistant coach 
to the Yale football team. He was probably the most athletic president in American history, which is why it's ironic that the first thing people think of Gerald Ford <laughs> no. now is Chevy Chase Chevy falling Chase down. My husband's always like, the guy did it one time. Well, you know, Bush threw up on, on the Japanese guy, prime minister. Japanese yes, prime minister, that was forty-one. That was yes, and nobody ever let him live that and down the, either. And the broccoli so. thing. I think you've got the broccoli thing in there. That he no, said. that's not in there. But oh, that would be no, thing? that's not in there. But that would be that he hated it. Yeah. yeah. He hated broccoli, couldn't serve it. And it didn't broccoli what like, did he say, like I'm an adult, you can't tell me what I have to eat. Or no, he hated broccoli. Or and he, he outlawed broccoli yes. from the um, from the White House. He didn't yeah. want it in there. And then when people found out, like the farm, they, they went crazy because the yes, farmers. Were like, oh, <laughs> yes, yeah. you, you know, can't have the president saying I don't like this. It's interesting. One of his opponents for ni- the 1992 Democratic nomination, he lost, but was Tom Harkin, senator from Iowa. Mm-hmm. And Harkin used to make fun of Bush, his kind of patrician pedigree, and he used to say that Bush's idea of a domestic program is. To, is to yell at the butler and fire the maid. <laughs> be true. <laughs> well, I sort of felt bad for him when he was running against Clinton. There she is. There's Betty Ford. With yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, and, I had to look at him. And he, you know, he made. Um, well, now I've lost my train. Of oh, sorry. I think I know what you're talking. I think you're going. It might be wrong, but there was a um, in one of the debates. Someone said, "How does the national debt personally affect you?" Yes. And Bush got up there and he didn't under, he said, I don't think something to the effect of, well, did you mean, how does it affect, affect you know, all of us? Or he basically kind of questioned it. This was the also debate we were seeing looking at his watch. And then Bill Clinton gets up after his response. Bush, well, Bush was basically saying, I think I misunderstand the question. Can you rephrase it? And then Clinton gets up, walks over to her. This is where he was perfect. This is probably the 91, the election when he did this. And he said, you know what, Zachary, you know, I come from a small state. And he said, you know, the state where I come from, if somebody loses their job, I either know the I either know I either know the person specific individually or I know members of that community, and he really personalized it. This was he really perfected the town hall. Um, yeah, he he really perfected the town the town hall presidency, and he looked he looked her right in the eye, walked up to her, and you know Butch was seen as kind of this patrician out of touch. And I was thinking Clinton, about the milk comment. Well, when they asked him what a gallon of milk. Oh was. Yes, yes. I was like, how would he know what a gallon? I don't. You know, most people don't know what a gallon of milk costs. No. It was about a scanner. I think it was on. He was. It was. It was. In, but it was a new type of a scanner that he. Yes. Was, it wasn't necessarily the old scanner. So he was like, wow, this is really neat. And he was looking at it. And he said this is, but people gave the, the next day the impression was he didn't know what a scanner was. It was my because my mother that was when yeah my mother lost all respect. She was like you know when was the last time you were in a grocery? <laughs> he didn't know, he doesn't know how to grocery shop. He didn't know what this was. Yeah, she was. That was it. it was, and I'm, I'm good with that. I'm, I'm good with that. I and I'm sure. And I'm sure. I'm sure. Somebody else go get them. I'm sure. By the way, that all presidents go to grocery stores. Sure so, <laughs> well, Mike Dukakis, I guess he was kind. He's kind of an anomaly because you know he would actually go out to. Um, when he was at the state, when he was at the state house, he would actually go across the street. He'd actually go and get, you know, um, get his clothes fixed by himself. He and, was an anomaly. I yeah, think. he totally was. driving this, going on the subway. Of take, yes, of take, take, yeah, and he still takes public transit. Yes, yes. Because I have done, I have participated in events with him in Lynn, and I know you got to wait for him because he's going to take the train, and then he's going to take the bus, and then he's going to walk over. Yes, <laughs> so, it's. You know, I, <laughs> I love that because it's so. I mean, it's so real. It's like everyone I know. else. I know. So of course, if you were doing something else, you'd have to wait for you know, like your friends to come over. <laughs> okay, Bob's taking the train. He'll be here in a couple of hours. I think I just wait for someone to drive me a limo. I, I think. From a public relations standpoint, though, it was um, it was perfect, which is another issue. In in 1990, in 1988, uh, George H. W. Bush, who was also, by the way, an Ivy Leaguer, 
was this able. A tank? No, no, no. no but this is that's another story. That's yeah, that's Dukakis. But he was able to trade. He was able. He often talked about, for example, the Harvard boutique, and he tried to portray Dukakis as an Ivy Leaguer from Massachusetts. He called him that liberal governor from yeah. Massachusetts, and he always say Massachusetts, which is kind of ironic because if you look at in terms of his background, um, even though he's a governor of Massachusetts, he lived a very frugal, yeah. uh, flinty lifestyle. Yes, he does. So and, he did, yeah. But Bush, even though he himself had come from that Ivy League pedig- that Ivy League pe- pedigree, was able to portray Dukakis as an intellectual elitist. But also when he ran that year, despite the fact where Bush came from, he, one of his opponents in the primary was Peter Paul DuPont the, from the DuPont family, oh, okay, the, governor, yeah. the governor of Delaware. And he would constantly call him Pierre to show that he was an elitist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to show this is an elitist. He would say, well, as Pierre said in a debate, so people would get this impression, wow, that guy really is an elitist that he, you know, he's seen as Pierre. But Nelson Rockefeller, this is how he would do it. He, would always, he had this... He was governor of New York. He ran for president um, in six, in a couple times. And he would always come up to people, and when they'd say, good, good job on that speech, good job, he'd always come up and he'd say, thanks a million. Later, his staff told him that when you say thanks a million, people immediately think you're a millionaire. So he'd go up and he'd say, thanks a thousand. Talk about the tank. Do you think he lost it with the tank? When did he lose it? No. I think that was actually that, – well, that was a strategy. It, no, I, we, yeah, that had a lot. It was Sam Nunn, the senator from Georgia, that recommended that he do this to try to show his military background. He did a military bona fides. He was actually in the military. So he goes in the tank. He gets a, ca- a hat helmet too yeah, large for him. But there were a few other factors, too. Remember, at the convention in August of 1988, he was literally 17 points ahead. 17 points ahead of George H.W. Bush. So between then and November, how does he lose those 17 points? He had a great convention. Part of that was, the, was certainly the Willie Horton ads, um, where they, Willie Horton, who had somebody from Massachusetts who had been on a furlough program and had gone down to Maryland and had essentially raped somebody. Um, that was part of it. That had helped. But the other part, there was a couple other issues. One of them was the Massachusetts miracle, which he had run on, which he had won the primaries on, talking about the great shape the Massachusetts economy yeah. had gone in. Right at the, it was right at the wrong time, right around that time, the, con- the Massachusetts economy started to spiral. So George H.W. Bush used that against him. Um, he used to say that, you know, you talk about the Massachusetts miracle, and as a result, the caucus had to spend an inordinate amount of time in Massachusetts, coming back to Massachusetts to try to work on the economy. And people were saying, why is he doing that? And he would also um, th- th- so that was that was one of the things that hurt. And the other thing was George H. W. Bush used the pollution in Boston Harbor. And one of the debates after yeah. Dukakis was after Dukakis gave elect was asked about how he would balance the budget, and he was seen it was kind of um, discombobulated his response. You know, Bush looks at him and says, "Is this the time for one-liners?" That answer is about as clear as Boston Harbor. Oh. <laughs> And the other thing that killed him, too, was Bernard Shaw, in one of the debates, asked a question, if, your, um, if Kitty Dukakis's wife was murdered, yeah, uh, was raped and murdered, would you support the irrevocable death penalty? And instead of Dukakis saying, you know, giving some sort of an answer, which he, he, was, a, he was a vociferous opponent I of the death penalty. By my wife. Yeah, he didn't say that. He said, well, no, I don't, Bernard. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you, I've always opposed the death penalty and gave a very intellectual response, which made him seen as being very Cold. out of touch. Yeah. Whereas somebody like Mario Cuomo, for example, when he was governor of New York, he was running against Ed Koch. And when they were both running for governor of New York to succeed Hugh Carey, and they asked, they asked Mario Cuomo a very similar response, and he said, the answer is yes. Would I do something? I'd probably go strangle the person. They're very similar questions. He said, I'd probably go strangle the person, but we have law for a reason so that that doesn't happen. So that kind of – it helped out, my, it helped out Brock, um, Mario Cuomo in that respect. But for him to caucus, he was seen as kind of this Massachusetts intellectual who didn't necessarily have compassion. And it just hurt him because he, he was known for giving very intellectual responses as yeah. opposed to we're in a nation that seems to look for more emotional responses. Yeah. So how do you That's stay out of the fray? I, I want to know how <laughs> Because, you know, 
We have a very controversial president. We're not going to go. Yeah, he is a little that. controversial now that I think about it. Yeah. So are you keeping news on him? Yes. You know, how do you stay I have a feeling he has a whole book on himself. He's well, got a whole lot well, of I try, I try to, I try, I, I, there are some, but I try to stay out of it just so that people don't view it as just a book about Trump. The first okay. thing people ask me is usually, well, you have gaps. There must be a lot about Trump. And I say, yes, there are. And I do put some in there. But I don't want it to be just about Trump. Sure. Um, you know, the other one people always ask me about, or they would have asked me about 10 years ago, is what about Dan Quayle? Is he in okay, there a I bunch of times? Ask him <laughs> <about Dan Quayle. laughs> and he is in there a bunch of times. He was a very smart man. He, he was somebody who I think, his issue was he peaked too early. This was somebody, he got in the house in 76, and then, in 74 rather, and yeah, 76, and then four years later, he beat Birch, in Ronald Reagan's landslide election in 1980, he beat Birch by, Birch by the senator from Indiana who had been a presidential candidate in 76, who was one of the leaders of the Democratic Party, wrote the 25th Amendment. I have no um, idea who these people are. <laughs> fascinating. Well, he was a national figure at but the time. He does. I know. It's so fascinating. And, We're just sitting here, just staring at him. <laughs> and Quayle runs against him, and then Quayle becomes, so Quayle becomes a national figure in part because he took off this political giant in Birch by. I mean, part of that was just because there was a dissatisfaction with Jimmy Carter, and there's dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party nationally. So Quayle becomes a United States senator. And then in 92, uh, he comes part of the conservative wing of the, of the Republican Party, and there was always skepticism amongst the conservative wing toward George H.W. Bush because when he ran in 1980 for president, he ran against Reagan as a moderate, and he talked, he called his economic plan voodoo economics. Voodoo yeah. economics. So in order in 1988 to keep a lot of the conservatives galvanized, he chose a young conservative in Dan Quayle. Quayle was 41 years old. A lot of people had never heard of him. He was somewhat of an obscure senator. And Dan Quayle comes off as very immature, very inexperienced at the national stage. Um, he would he would sometimes he would he would sometimes he would sometimes misspeak when he was when he was when he was running when he when he when he, when he announced them. You could see him announce. He could say um, you know, and you you could see him. He just looked like he essentially a he deer looked in the he looked like a deer in the headlights. Absolutely. I wonder if he regrets. If he, had, he was young and inexperienced. Oh, absolutely. If he had stayed in the Senate. And if he had stayed in the Senate for a longer period of time, he actually did run for president in 2000, but he dropped out before the New Hampshire yeah. primary himself. So obviously he had those ambitions. But when you get picked that early, yeah. eventually you your political career is over because people – I mean in 2000 when he ran, you had George W. Bush, President Bush's yeah. son. You had John McCain, and they were really the two front runners. and Quayle was kind of an electoral afterthought by that time. Yeah. It's kind of – I would actually equate it in many respects to Jane Swift. The former acting governor, okay, yep, yep. because she was somebody who had gotten elected to the state senate in Massachusetts in her twenties, and then Paul Salucci is so Paul Salucci becomes governor after Bill Weld, um, you know, yep, tried to become least, yeah. after Bill Weld leaves, and then he needs lieutenant governor under the Massachusetts Constitution. You can't have a lieutenant governor. The governor can't pick the lieutenant governor, but when he runs for reelection, he can choose a lieutenant governor. So it's kind of one of those loopholes that huh. there isn't a lieutenant governor until the president. It used to be that with the president, okay. you know, like for example, James Garfield served without a served without a vice president because I mean, I'm sorry, Chester Arthur served came in in 1881. There was no vice president. There was no vice. Um, there was no vice president. Then you look at the same thing with, for example, um, for yeah, that, so that happened. And then certainly when Andrew Johnson came in in 1965, there was no vice president because there was no – eventually, actually, Birch Bayh was one of the people who changed this because the 25th Amendment okay. in 1967 allows the president the opportunity to pick his own vice president as long as the Senate confirms him. And, in, and so when Gerald Ford came in, um, he, was, he picked Nelson Rockefeller, and Nelson Rockefeller became his vice president. Prior to that, Richard Nixon, it was Spiro Agnew. Spiro Agnew resigned. Of negativity. negativity. <laughs> Spiro Agnew resigned. Famous line. Yeah. And then he got was able to was and able he had to like nominate the Ford. Coolest name for anybody, Spiro Agnew. I know. A lot of that was Pat Buchanan who wrote a lot of that stuff. 
Um, so he was he he was really a predecessor, I think, to a lot of the rhetoric of Donald Trump. But in terms of Jane Swift, so she gets in. So, so Swift, so he needs somebody. From, he needs a female. He needs someone from the western part of the state, and she fits both of those categories. Sure. So he picks Jane Swift. Jane Swift becomes the lieutenant governor. Jane Swift, remember, she made a lot of mistakes when yep. she was lieutenant governor. One yes, of them being f- being flying home <laughs> to on her helicopter, on her helicopter to, and you know using your state aides with babysitters. So she's known for that, <laughs> and she tries to run for governor. Her she tries to so she becomes governor. Salute. She becomes governor becomes ambassador to Mexico herself. Yep. Um, Swift's reputation was essentially... In tatters. Ta- yeah, absolutely. So she tries to run herself, and they took a poll. Mitt Romney, who had, who had actually said that he would not run against any, that he would not run against her and support her, once they saw a poll that shows Mitt Romney in the Republican primary, 75%. Jane Swift, 15%. Republicans say, we need somebody else. And it's funny, that day, actually, Bill Weld, the former governor, came out and said, I support Jane Swift. Three hours later, Jane Swift announces she's dropping out of the race that oh. year. <laughs> so, um, but then, you know, so she, so she, she's in, she's in her thirties, you know, young forties. She's having twins, and by the, by the time she leaves office, there's really nowhere for her to go. No. So the question: What if she had, what if she had what stayed in the state her, senate? Like? She's, what if she had stayed in the state senate for a longer period of time? Eventually, she would have been a formidable force, and yeah. people would have looked at her, and she probably would have become, become governor. She just peaked way too early, she's I think. Too soon. Yeah, I don't know what she's doing. And I think she's a Raising consultant. Her kids. I think she's a consultant. I know she lives part of the time in Vermont, yes. And then she spends part of the time out in the... Remember she used to commute from Mass and forth from Massachusetts out to Williamstown every day? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and, and, the, and Quayle, what happened with him? He just sort of... He, he's away. in the equities industry now. He ran for president. So was he as dumb as people say he was? I always thought, like... He I think he was... He was... Yeah. He would, well, he was a very poor speaker... Um, he came from a, another person who came from a very patrician background, and I think um, tried to come off as very as very regular and had a lot of problems doing that. Um, <laughs> certainly, when he talked about, for example, he you know when he would speak and he would talk about um, you know we can't go back to the future, but we can't we can't go back to the past, but we can go back, and he would just say things that people would just look at and they'd say, "Wow!" But the potato issue, which most people oh, immediately yeah, yeah, immediately yeah. equate him yeah. with, he was at a spelling bee. And he was so the, the the word was potato, and the, actually the card had a misprint on it. And the card had an E at the end, so he was so the, so the person so the, so the kid went up and spelled it rightly without the E, and then Quayle said, "Oh, you need to put an E on that." So then the kid looks, didn't think so, but he put the E on it. But the card said it said to put an E on it. Now, how many people in the real world would would have if, would have yeah. put an E on that? So E on it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw somebody actually spell it somewhere and somewhere on the internet, and I said, "Wow, people do spell it that way. People do. I mean, it's, you, you, I guess it's just you want you have this." Subliminal reason that you, you want to put want it in the to. end. You want yeah, to put an E at the end. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and there was the whole Murphy Brown thing too. That didn't help him either. Oh, oh yeah, no. family. Va- well, family values. Yeah, he yeah. tried to. Um, oh my God! Went after Murphy Brown. Murphy Brown. The, the car- <laughs> and of course, you know, they had a field day with that. Yeah. I mean, part of that too was he was was the way that he Did was. Did he seen know the- Murphy Brown was not was not a real person? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so. He's watching um, yeah. TV, going that Murphy Brown. It's funny how the whole family values issue that was such a big camp issue in the '92 campaign. I mean, now it's you know, know candidates. I mean, now because you have candidates get divorced. I mean, candidates get divorced twice. Get to, I mean, Ally Stevenson was running in '52 and '56. It was a huge issue that he had been divorced. Yeah. Uh, when Nelson Rockefeller ran in the Republican primary in 1964, it was a huge issue that he had been divorced. Um, Ronald Reagan eventually gets divorced, and was divorced, and became a non-issue. John Kerry runs in 2004. No one really. Or John McCain first runs in 2000. He'd been divorced. John Kerry had been divorced. No one thought about it again. Now, I mean, if you in 2020, 
one thing Donald Trump will not be able to run on is family values. <laughs> you know that, true. but that used to be the Republicans. That used to be the Republicans' mantra was we're the party of mm-hmm. we're the party of traditional family values, and now it's essentially that's become a, really a non-issue. Talk a little bit about um, make every yep. vote equal. When did you when did you write? Because I feel like you when did you write this? I wrote this in 2000, this the 2014. Policy. Yes. Because I feel like you could reissue this. So this is, <laughs> yes. This is yes. a big topic right now. Yes. So tell us a little bit about. Yes. This is where I take a stand. This is okay. I was working at the time for a group called National Popular Vote. And it's a little bit complicated, so I'll try to explain it. What National Popular Vote is founded by John Cosa, who invented the scratch off lottery ticket. (laughs) So he's got a lot of money. (laughs) And he's, 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 so he's, he basically is bankrolling this whole movement. And if you go look at the Electoral College, people immediately say, well, the Electoral College was put in there because the founders knew what they were doing or the founders were trying to protect the small states. Actually, the founders didn't know what they were doing. The founders <laughs> – they, they were sort of making it up. First of all, when people, when people use the word up. founders, they're presuming the founders were a monolith. They debated the whole time in Philadelphia that hot summer in 1787. They were debating. It's not like they it, wanted to get out. It was hot. It was <laughs> I've been in Independence. <laughs> it is a sweaty hot place in the summer. But they disagreed on a lot of things. It's not like they all thought the same way. People may say, "Well, the founders thought." I mean, Hamilton, Jefferson—they were all on different sides. Well, there were a lot of proposals in terms of how to elect the president. There was a proposal to have the Congress elect him. There was a proposal to have the state legislators elect him. There was a proposal to have a direct popular vote. So what the so what the what the um, delegates essentially said is let's not deal with this. Let's have the states choose the electors any way they want. So all they say in the Constitution is each state shall appoint in such a manner that the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. That's all it says. The word electoral college is not enshrined in law t- until 1845. Okay. So originally each state said, okay, this is how we're going to do it. Some of them had state legislators appointing the person who was going to be the state le- – who was going to be the pre- – nom- the person who was going to be the president. Some people – only three states did it with direct popular vote. Um, by direct popular vote, meaning the I mean, sorry, the person who Was wins the state. Was one of them? Yes, of course. The ones who win the <laughs> ones who win the state. But here's the reason: the only reason that now we look at the electoral college and people assume that it's required in the constitution that each state has to um, award their electoral votes to whoever wins that state. The only reason that was that was popularized in 1789 was because the Democratic Republican Party, which was powerful at the presidential level, was also powerful at a lot of state legislative levels. So as a result, what they tried to do to maximize their influence in terms of the state, they want to say, well, let's give all of our electoral votes to whoever wins this state. So whoever wins this state in the Democratic Republican states would give all their electoral votes that way. But it was not enshrined. It's certainly not enshrined in the Constitution that they have to do it that way. Okay. Maine and so Nebraska. If have, so if you have like yep. six votes, you really don't have to give them all to like whoever wins. You could just be like, I can give you three to this one and three to that one. You can absolutely, oh, four to that. absolutely. That that you could do that. You could do that. You could have if you want, if you decide in terms of who you have to nominate electors. So, but who those who the state chooses those electors? They don't have to be somebody who's going to support whoever won that state. Hmm. So. For example, in Maine and Nebraska, they're the ones that do it a little bit differently. What they do is for t- so they give two two at-large votes to whoever wins the state. Then what they do is they award congressional districts. So if so if candidate won- so for example in 2008, Barack Obama won the Omaha-based congressional district in in, in Nebraska, which was more liberal, has colleges there, and he lost the the rest of the state, which is more rural, more conservative. So he gets the, so he so. So John McCain wins the state of Nebraska. He wins every electoral vote except for one. One goes to Obama. So that's how they do that in Nebraska. That's how they do that in Maine. They do it. They do this. They do the same that's thing. Fascinating. Yeah. So what the national popular vote does is it's an interstate compact. Um, there's a misapprehension that people have that the only way to change the electoral college is to eliminate it by a constitutional amendment. Um, 
In order, basically, what this does is it says, well, all the electors have to do is award their is agree in this compact to award their electoral votes to whoever wins the national popular vote. So Massachusetts is in it, Illinois is in it, Colorado's in it, Delaware just got in it, and the only way that would be implemented or actuated would be if enough votes agree, to, if enough states agree to agree to this compact that that constitute the requisite 270 votes which you need to win the electoral college. So one state would not unilaterally. So once this compact, once every state agrees to this compact, um, that would then they would then say, okay, we're going to actuate this. But it's an interstate compact, and states have plenary authority to award their electoral votes in any way they so choose. Now, the way I look at it is this. Um, basically, we have a system right now where small states are ignored. The, the argument is often, well, small state, well, it's often, well, the Electoral College protects small states. Okay, so look at North Dakota, South Dakota, Alaska, <laughs> Idaho, Utah have not, gone for a Repu- have not gone for a Democratic president since 1964. So there's no, and they're all conservative. There's no reason why any candidate would go there. On the other side, you have Massachusetts, Hawaii, Rhode Island. Um, You have the, the, you have all the liberal states, and there's no reason for a presidential candidate to go there. Now on the other side, you have the three big, you have the three, three big states. You have New York, California, and Texas. They're all ignored because essentially, except for well, what would happen? What can go into L.A., go to New York? They'll parachute in. They'll hold a they'll hold a um, fundraiser. Then they use that money in Iowa, in Ohio, sure. in all those middle states, middle which states, are the one, yeah. which are the ele- the eleven states, eleven or twelve states, which actually matter in electoral politics. So essentially, four fifths of the country is is right now is ignored in the system because and, and so what so how, what's the consequences of that? Yeah, it's like what's why should I vote? Who why should I care? Yeah. Why should I, right? Why should I care if you know how your state is going to come out? Why would why would anybody why would any presidential candidate hey if they have spend any time in a state like Massachusetts other than to get their money and then to spend it someplace else? So what happens in the general election? What happens when the politician comes in office, for example, is those states are ignored again? Like Joe Biden and Barack Obama, every two weeks one of them would be in Ohio. Um, they, so George W. Bush was a vociferous uh, free trader. He ran on free trading. He talked about how we need to open up markets. So he becomes president, 2002, 2003. Um, Pennsylvania and Ohio, two quintessential showdown states, their senators come up to him and say, we need steel tariffs to protect the local steel industry. So George W. Bush says, okay, and he supports steel tariffs. Purely political decision because this goes against this goes completely against any ideological view that he had had about being a vociferous free trader and sure. everything else. He's a free trader. Um, so he so but when it comes to Ohio or Pennsylvania, you have to change you have to change a little bit because they're so coveted. The other example would be you know anything to do with Florida. Um, the candidates will go to the Everglades. They'll go to the they'll talk to the specific communities in <laughs> Florida. Talk, yeah. Talk yeah. <laughs> but when was the, for example the last time that the fishing industry in the Northeast, for example? Or was ever when was their flight for regulations? When was that a national issue? Yeah. And what happened is presidents will oftentimes sign legislation that regulates the fishing industry because there is really no political influence that they have at the national level because there are places like, for example, Massachusetts, where you have you know when you're renewing Magnuson Stevenson, which is the which essentially regulates the fishing industry mm-hmm. on a presidential level. There's no reason for a presidential candidate Not to. So. Or the other issue would be water rights. For example, issues like California. It's a huge issue in California, but California is not a swing state. And the other issue. don't care about California. <laughs> and the other oh, issue. Nice. And the other issue you hear oftentimes is you say, well, if this were to happen, if 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 the states were to award their electoral votes to the popular vote winner, then they just the candidates would just all spend all their time in the, in the cities and everyone else would be ignored. Okay, so use California as a template. Anyway. Use California. Yeah, right. Use California as a template. Ronald Reagan. Pete Wilson and Arnold Schwarzenegger all got elected there overwhelmingly. And you know what? As governor, Ronald Reagan is governor twice and then as president twice. And you know where he lost? He lost 
overwhelmingly in San Francisco, in Oakland, in Los Angeles. So he was able to win California without winning any of those big cities. So a candidate would really be foolhardy to spend all their time in just the cities, and most of the cities are Democratic anyway. Lost Los Angeles? I mean, well, maybe it was acting with the chimp. Well, it was. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's how you win California. You win win Texas. I mean, Rick Perry can win Texas without with losing Austin or Houston and Dallas. He can win by making up making it up in the rest of the state or New York City. I mean, how can George Pataki, a Republican, get elected three times as governor of New York when New York City, the largest city in the country? He loses it overwhelmingly. So, Rich, are people freaking out, like, with the census? I mean, because we're, we're about to go through a, a census. It's true. Yes. A national census, which will tell us how many votes we get here yes. and there and yes. where they're all going to go. So is there, like, a bit of a freak out when that kind of thing happens? Or uh, Not yet. It hasn't really – I think there's been so many other issues that have been people on the table. No, I think – I mean, yeah, you ask the average per- – if you go to yeah. do a man on the street and say, what do you think of the 2020 census? Yeah. <laughs> the average person's going to say what? What? It's like asking <laughs> someone what they think of the line-item veto. It's like <laughs> – talking about a lot of the questions that they want to put on and take off the census. That's true. About, know, yes, about citizens and about yeah. citizens yep. and all this other stuff. So that'll be interesting. I'm going to volunteer with the census this year. I think it'll be interesting. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that, I just think it'll be fascinating. That'll be you know, a great story to so, then yeah, cover it. Yeah, go and talk to people and see yeah. what they have to say. Yeah, no, to I'm people. totally. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be great. So do you think we'll ever switch to a popular vote? I, mean, I think I it's think happening. More people are like voting for you know American Idol than they are for president. <laughs> I think it's happening yeah. right now. I mean, we've there. there it, it's well, only taking. <laughs> it's only taking. It's only taking a few. Going to take a few more states to agree to this compact because it doesn't have to be every state has to agree to it. The states can really? change their. Yeah, states can change their laws. Any Massachusetts has already said, for example, that as soon as enough states requiring that two hundred seventy elect constituting that two hundred seventy electoral votes. Um, agree to the national popular vote that they're going with it. California has said that. Uh, Maryland, that Delaware. So, cool. so if that happens, so then if they all get together and go, okay, sign. Yeah, everybody signs it. The rest of, but the electors, well, they've already signed it. Oh, did they? Oh, okay. The electors, um, they still. I mean, you still have the electoral college process. The states still picking electors. They're just picking the elector for this candidate who won the national popular who vote. Who are these electors? Like, who are these people that are? They're voting, not, like these secret yes. society of electoral college voters. They're usually, their party... Super voters, I never <laughs> understood any of that. They're a member of the party high command, but they can't be federal officials, and they're not people who are in elective office. But usually they are somebody, for example, who's the chairman of the Democratic or Republican Party. They're somebody who's been a longtime official. I mean, it's really a ceremonial so it's not job. like, you know, the butcher down the street, somebody like that. It could, theoretically, it could be, it could be but I it's just not. I thinking, I wonder, is there any... She's for a Republican, big. that's she's a good point. I don't know if she Republican she party. very possibly could be. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's she used to work for yeah. She used to she lives Amy Carnavale. She lives in Marblehead, and she's yeah. She worked for targeting Amy. She worked for she actually worked for. I know I didn't know if I should call her out or not, but I just I wonder if she is. I've never asked her. I know she worked for George Nethercutt. And Nethercutt ran in 94 against Tom Foley. And this was in Tom Foley was Speaker of the House. He becomes the first Speaker of the House since the Civil War to lose his own congressional seat. When he ran for re-election, in 90, and when he ran for re-election back in 1994, most of the time Speakers of the House are somebody like, for example, Nancy Pelosi or John Boehner who come from very red or very blue mm-hmm. districts. Well, Foley came from a very conservative district. I mean, you think of Washington, you think of Seattle, but he was in the part that connects to Idaho. So he came from a very conservative state, part of the state. And, you know, he was, for example, an NRA supporter. Um, he was a free trader. He was more conservative than a lot of other speakers. But George Nethercat that year ran against him, and it became a national causes ballet to beat the Speaker of the House. And Ross Perot came in and campaigned for George Nethercut. And Ross George Perot. Ne- and <laughs> they took a poll after the election, and they said that 25% of the voters in that congressional district thought that if George Nethercut got elected, he would become Speaker of the House. Huh. <laughs> 
I want to know, Rich, are you are you looking forward? To, do you look forward to election season? You must. Well, election You're season like, never okay, stops. I've got a list. It never it stops. Not even nowadays. You're, true. You're right. As soon yeah. as one election's over, yeah, you're, you're immediately up. gearing up. It's yeah. funny because it, I always find it fascinating. It's so annoying. I find it fascinating when you ask people that are in office and you ask them. All right, the, me- the media immediately start asking, "Will you be a presidential candidate for the next for the next next yeah. go around?" And they're spending probably half their time thinking about it and positioning it and getting advisors and you know usually launching packs, which are essentially go out and, ca- and and allow the candidate to spend money to yeah. go out and campaign for people. Coincidentally, in Iowa, North Carolina, New Hampshire, a lot of times, or they become chairman of the governor's association of their party or whatever. But they keep asking them and they keep saying, "You know." That's such a remote possibility. I'm not even thinking about that right now. I remember they, they're thinking about. You know that's all they're thinking about. You know, you know that's all that's called Seth Moulton. You know that's all they call. That's all that's going through their mind is how I'm going to position myself to be president. Yep. But they have to talk about how right now, you know, I have a job and I really love the job I'm doing right now. Or they'll say, you know, we got to focus on the 2018 midterm elections. Then they say, well, and then when they ask you, will you run for? They ask the question. Will you be a presidential candidate? Or they ask you the answer. Notice they before until they announce, they answer it in the present tense. They say, "I am," which is technically true. They say, "I am not a candidate for president." Right. But right now, we need to focus on the education of our children and the health care and the prescription drugs. And they immediately divert from one to the other. Yeah. But they never say, very rarely do they say specifically like when Linda Johnson in '68 says, "I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president." That is a categorical, absolute. Gold-plated, rock-solid statement that I'm not going to run. No. Now, a, no. no, now the now it's well, you know, I'm not I'm not running for president, or I'm not focused on that right now. It's something like that, and it's so it just it's just so blatantly transparent when yeah. you listen to it. And the viewers, I mean, you almost wonder if it would just be better for a presidential candidate to say, yeah, yeah. you know, it's something I'm That's really considering. I, yeah, I wanted to say, say yes. Because <laughs> yes, yes, we all know you're thinking it. Don't just say it. You're, you're thinking it. You're acting like it. You're yeah. doing it. You're in the north. You're, you're in the south. You're everywhere. You've just been trying to do it. Yes. You've been thinking about it since third grade. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is my moment. But you also, well, I think part of it is you're giving, because at least in your district or state, you're giving position for, if you're running for re-election, for somebody to say that you're using this as a gangway to the presidency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why you try not. That's why you try oh, not sure. to say it specifically. Well, also, I think you're also looking at the field. Don't you? You're like, well, I can't win against him. I can't win. Against oh yeah, her. absolutely. I can win this. This all these people. You know, you try to sort of size up the field. Because sure. I, I always think they size up the field and then they go, well, you know, I wasn't really planning that. I was just exploring my options. Well, that's what. Ha- yeah, that's exactly what happened. You know, that certainly happened for some people who were exploring it. For example, Sherrod Brown. The senator from from Ohio was looking at it. And I think he saw that the field was too crowded. Yeah. He didn't see a movement for him. Good Lord. Um, but go back to '92 when George H. W. Bush had a 91 percent job approval rating after the end of the Gulf War. So who are the candidates going to be for that year? You have these are the candidates who dropped out who would have potentially been stronger candidates than the ones who were in there. You had Dick Gephardt, you had Al Gore, you had Bill Bradley, you had Jesse Jackson, you had Lloyd Benson. Um, all essentially saying that they're not going to be presidential candidates, probably because they didn't think they could win. Then Mario Cuomo actually has an airplane that's about to go to New Hampshire. That he was, that he decides I'm going to stay, in, I'm going to stay, and I'm going to be governor of New York. And I'm going to work on the budget. So then, who do you have as a result? You have the B team that year. So Bill Clinton gets in. Tom Harkin. He actually didn't get in that year until, believe it or not, October 3rd of 1991. Bill, Bill Clinton. You had Tom Harkin. You had Doug Wilder who drops out. Jerry Brown and Paul Song, Paul Songus. And Tom Tom Laughlin, and so those are the people who essentially run that run that year. But that was a barely a B team. Had some of the more had the A team people been in there? Had Al Gore been in, for example, who ran a very strong race in '88? Had Dick Gephardt been in? It might have been a lot different. But it was the candidates who actually got in who kind of showed up, who said that I yeah. think it's going to be vulnerable because of the economy, because people don't vote on foreign on foreign policy, and people are going to yep. forget about the Gulf War. It's all and they were all right. They were he was and he he, he was he was absolutely he was right, especially with the Cold War 
coming to a screech coming to a screeching halt, foreign policy was no longer a flagship issue, and people were looking at the economy and they were seeing the economic downturn. And Bill Clinton realized that, where a lot of the a lot of the Democrats who had higher name recognition didn't realize that, and the ones who perhaps could have could have actually been could have also could have been the nominee that year. Yeah. So what do you think? What do you think of the field? And this is it's extreme. It's well, there. I don't know if you know, but there are about fifty-seven people. Um, <laughs> it's it's fascinating. There are actually a lot more people. If you look at the people, all you have to do to get on the ballot in New Hampshire, by the way, is give a thousand dollars filing fee. So there are a lot of people that are on the ballot that you never have no idea. There's going to be like wow. a, it's always like one hundred seventy-four people that get on this thing, but the media winnows them down to the people that have some sort of political like, office. <laughs> It looks great for me. It looks great on the resume. It looks great on your. It looks great on the resume. Cool. And then you get to go on some talk. You get to go on probably a few local radio talk shows. Thank good WBUR. They might pick me up. In terms of the field that's out there right now, it's an extremely strong field that they have because everybody sees their sees an opening right now. They see an aperture. The oh, the Democrats right now, and. In terms of okay, so, so first of all, in terms of electability, right now the Democrat, at least you, any poll you see, electability is trumping ideology. So in terms of electability, you look at who are the most electable candidates. Uh, he hasn't announced yet. I don't know if he will or not. But I look at Steve Bullock, the current governor of Montana, okay. and he's somebody who's been reelected last time around in 2016. And he won. He was reelected by four points the same day Donald Trump won Montana by 20 points, and he won 25 percent of Trump's voters. And he's done this with a progressive like record. Six people living in Montana. But he's done this. But he. But he has a very. He's able to win. He's somebody who's able to win conservative voters. And he's done, and he's able to do it with a progressive record. It's not like he ran as a conservative Democrat. So he's somebody who had true to get in the race and win the get in. If he somehow by a miracle win the primary, and get in the general election, I think he'd be a very formidable candidate in terms of taking on Trump. A lot of people, with yeah. a lot of those but voters. How do you shine among fifty-seven. That's people? the issue. Yeah. That's the, well. Right now, you're seeing um, Peter Buttigieg, the for, the governor, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, of all places. I mean, you know, he's that's somebody in previous elections you would have said, is this person a major candidate? Will this count? But he's you know he's giving speeches. He's appearing at town halls. And he's up, to four, he's up to 4% now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that shows that you know, people are looking for somebody who's not necessarily an established politician. Yeah. Now, that being said, it's very similar to what happened in 72, for example. Um, right after, you have this, the same scenario you have. In 68, Hubert Humphrey gets a nomination. He never participates in any primaries except for South Dakota, where he came in third. He wins the nomination in part by winning at the convention delegates versus winning primary people. So Eugene McCarthy that year won, was the anti-Vietnam War candidate, and he was the only game in town. So a lot of the, his supporters, the insurgents who support him going back to New Hampshire when he got 42% of the vote and got Johnson to drop out of the race, Humphrey gets in. Humphrey wins the nomination. They are incensed. Humphrey gets the nomination. He's seen as the establishment candidate. They're protesting his events um, until uh, September 30th of that year. He goes to Salt Lake City and says that he'd support a unilateral halt to bombing for the acceptable rips for peace. Some of his supporters come over for Humphrey, but the point is they think that Humphrey stole the election from McCarthy in the primaries by not, by not participating in the primaries, but winning the convention delegates. A lot of them stayed home in the general election. Um, they actually, they find Eugene McCarthy, it was only about a week before the election that finally they got him to support Hubert Humphrey, and his direct quote was, I, I, I'm going to support Vice President Humphrey, and I asked my supporters to suffer with me. <laughs> so that shows how lukewarm wow. that endorsement was. That's like hold your nose and pull the trigger. So by 72, you have a scenario where you have, this, you have the establishment wing of the Democratic Party again, but then you have these insurgents, and Eugene McCarthy's running again. But this time around, Eugene McCarthy's not the only game in town. You have other candidates who are also who have come to his position of being against the Vietnam War. One of them is a senator from South Dakota named George McGovern, who was a 200-to-1 long shot. And McGovern is, is better at galvanizing a lot of the young people who only supported Eugene McCarthy because he was the only game in town. So McCarthy only gets 3.46% of the vote. 
You have George McGovern running that year, wins the nomination. He beats established candidates like Ed Muskie, the senator from Maine, Mm -hmm. and Hubert Humphrey, who runs again and actually wins the popular vote but didn't win enough delegates. So it kind of worked against him this time around. He won because George McGovern had had won... and that had won the right states, essentially. So you have the scenario, George McGovern wins the nomination, and then George McGovern runs. He's seen as too liberal, and he loses. He wins one, he wins one state, Massachusetts, and in the District of Columbia. He loses an electoral landslide to the Republican president, Richard Nixon. And later he says, um, you know, I opened, up the dem- I opened up the party to 20 million people. I opened up the party, meaning he opened up to a lot of people who hadn't been in the political process, and 20 million people walked out. So meaning that they, had, they supported Richard Nixon. You know, he got 49%, for example, that year of the Democratic vote. So why do I bring up this? 2016, Hillary Clinton gets a nomination. Bernie Sanders, when Elizabeth Warren announced she's not running, he's the only game in town in terms of a progressive alternative. You have Martin O'Malley and Lincoln Chafee going nowhere, Jim Webb running to the right, and they're going nowhere. So after New Hampshire, after you, essentially you have Sanders versus Hillary. And all the, all the liberal insurgents who are fed up with the Clintons, with the centrist movements, the triangulation, go over to Bernie Sanders. Sanders doesn't win the nomination, but we later find out that Debbie Watchman Schultz, the chairman of the Democratic Party, had basically rigged the system for Hillary Clinton, that the party had supported Hillary Clinton. So the Bernie Sanders supporters are incensed. And it takes Bernie Sanders to actually get up at the convention and say, we have a lot of disagreements, but we need to support Mrs. Clinton be- and say that, you know, you need to support us specifically because a lot of liberals were thinking of going to Jill Stein, the Green Party nominee. Mm-hmm. And right. so he's saying, we, he's saying this is very important. This is too important. So Hillary wins just like Humphrey did. I mean, Hillary loses just like Humphrey did in a razor-close election. And now you have the scenario where you have the liberal alternative has now become, in many respects, the establishment. Look at Bernie's proposals, for example, for Medicare for all, for taking on the big banks, for, for retrenching um, intervention, retrenchment of U.S. interventions overseas. A lot of those are now established democratic, democratic, um, democratic positions. So now you have all the other candidates going to where Bernie is. So now Bernie's just one game in town. Now you have Camilla, Camilla Harris. Now you have Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. Is it, is it like... It's like playing chess, isn't it? Like oh, absolutely. Because you're sort of like, now's my time, and if you don't if you don't hit that like right window, you're done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the candidates are looking at that, but you also have Joe Biden, who is the establishment candidate. But like Humphrey in '72, he's going to have a lot of the support of the typical Democratic establishment, like the firefighters, like the unions who organize. They vote, but they also organize a lot of these states. So there's going to be this whole dynamic again, like with Humphrey versus McGovern, where you're going to have the establishment candidate, who's probably going to be Joe Biden versus the insurrectionist. And who's the insurrectionist candidate? There are so many of them right now. There's Elizabeth Warren, there's Bernie Sanders, there's Tulsi Gabbard, and they're all essentially running to the same position. Now, the question is, if they keep moving as far, if if everyone keeps moving far to the left, first of all, is there an an opening for somebody to run for the center to kind of have that, you know, like to have that opening because everyone else is running to the left? But the other problem is, if everyone's moving to the left for the primaries, are they going to be able to move back to the center and position themselves fast enough um, for the general election, or are they going to have the problem where John Kerry had in 2004, where he had to run to the left in the primary, then he couldn't get back to the center in the general election? You know, it's the Nixon dictum. He said, you run to the, you run to the, to the, about the Republican Party, you run to the right in the primary, then the general election, you run back to the center. So the further left the party goes, now they might galvanize a lot of people that are potentially younger voters, voters that are going to come out that would say, you know, that are liberal voters who, are gonna, who haven't voted before. But you're also going to lose a lot of those centrist voters, specifically in places like the Rust Belt, where Joe Biden would be a very strong candidate, because there are a lot of, there are a lot more centrist Democrats, and some of them are more socially conservative. They're not necessarily they're not necessarily part of kind of the lifestyle liberals, I guess you would say. Um, and those are the people who would support Joe Biden. So it's really it's kind of you know it's kind of a trade off. Which way do you go left? Do you go center, or are you able to somehow? appeal to a broad cross and a broad cross section of constituencies and whoever can appeal to that widespread cross section yeah. I think it's going to, I think it's going to be the strongest nominee they 
they've learned from McGovern. The Republicans learned the same thing, by the way, in 64 when they went to the right and nominated Barry Goldwater. The only state he won outside the Deep South was, was his home state of Arizona. And then, you know, so it was, a, it was an absolute landslide against Linda Johnson because, generally speaking, um, if you move one side or the other, you're giving these other can- the, other, the, other, the other candidate enough time to take a lot of those voters in the center. So one of the things I found really fascinating, I have to say, is Chris wrote a story about Rich in his book. And one of the things, one of the quotes that sort of struck me was when you said something about the fact that people need to calm down because this has all happened before. Like, yes. there's nothing new in politics. It all just kind of comes around again. And so Rich has been able to sort of, like, you know, explain that, like, you know, yeah. find different things. Like, here's what's happening now, but this all kind of happened before. So everybody just settle down, take a deep breath. Oh, absolutely. We're just watching politics you know, like a rerun. Well, I think the difference, though, it, and that's true, the difference, though, is that Donald Trump is somebody who came from a background that no other, he's not, he wasn't a military person or a politician, which essentially every other politician, yeah. that's why, that's where we're in uncharted territories, because you have somebody who, well, first of all, you have a predecessor whose political experience was up until he became, he, he was in the state Senate, and then he runs for, he runs for a Senate seat. He wins the Senate seat, and then two years later, he starts running for president. So you, then you, and then his successor is somebody who has his only political experience was in the donor class. Yeah. So did Barack Obama was one of the, those peak too soon kind of people? Well, he peaked at the right time though. No. He, he peaked. President. He peaked at the right time because. Yeah, but there are a lot of people who say that he should have spent some more time in the Senate, and then he could have been more formidable taking on the Republican Party. Uh, but the problem with that, that, well, the issue with that though is I think that eventually he would have been well with Barack Obama's case. Just some some history in 2004. So he's he's one of seven or eight candidates running for the Senate in, in, in Illinois, and he's not the front runner. There was Jack Hines. There were a lot of other candidates. And so he wins the, nom- so he wins the nomination, and then in the general election, he's going to face Jack Ryan. And Jack Ryan later it turns out that his, um, that his wife, who was on Boston Public, the TV show, mm-hmm. that he had said that he had, they had brought her to sex clubs, and there were issues of his divorce records. So this became a huge issue in the general election, and then he drops out. Then eventually Alan Keyes, who comes from, comes from Maryland. They're looking for somebody to run against him. He runs. Um, Barack Obama wins overwhelmingly the Senate seat. I mean, he really, he was not the establishment candidate in the primary. He was one of many candidates. I mean, he was perhaps positioning himself for a future run for governor of Illinois, trying to get his name out there. So he was just in the right place at the right time. Then John Kerry says, why don't you, you're the nominee of the Democratic Party. I like the way you speak. Why don't you come to Boston and, and give the, and, and give the, um, and give an address at the, shine, con- at the convention. Right. And so he gives the so he gives the so he gives an address at the convention. Everyone absolutely loves him. He talks about there's not a red state, we're not a blue state, we're the United States of America. And he becomes a cult hero. So as soon as he gets to the United States Senate, people are immediately looking at him in the presidency. And then Harry Reid and, and Chuck Schumer, for example, believed Hillary Clinton, who was the establishment favorite, was not electable. So they looked at Barack Obama and they said, "We're not going to endorse you, but we want you to run." So eventually, after even though he had said the day after that he, he will not run, and unequivocally his only interest within the people of Illinois, eventually he says, "Yeah, I'm, he said I'm going to be a presidential candidate." He did it at the right time. Now, well, here's another example. Chris Christie, though, in 2000, in 2012, there was a movement in the Republican Party to get him to be the Republican Party's nominee for president. He'd just been elected governor, mayor of New Jer- governor of New Jersey. He was extremely popular in the state as a Republican mm-hmm. and as a somewhat as a center right Republican. And there was a movement to get him in there to get him to run for president, and he didn't do it. By 2016, when he does do it, it's over. he had just run yeah. for re-election, and they found that the whole Bridgegate thing came yep. in that he had, you know. And um, now his his job approval in New Jersey is in the 30s. 
It was at the time it was in the seventies. He was yeah. just gotten reelected overwhelmingly. Yep. So now he's one of many candidates. He doesn't win any. He doesn't win any state, and he's essentially out of it. But the, his peak time could have potentially been two thousand twelve. Whereas Barack Obama, I think they told him at the time they said, if you wait. If you stay in the Senate and you wait, you're just people. All people are going to do for future races. They're going to look at your votes. You're going to be an establishment politician. Right now, you're something new. Now, who does that work for? Beto O'Rourke. People will say, I kind of like him. Beto O'Rourke, just some background. This is a guy who gets elected in 2012. And he beats Sylvester Reyes. He beats an incumbent Democratic congressman in, in El Paso, Texas, in a Democratic primary, very, very Democratic district. He gets elected. In 2016, he runs against Ted Cruz. He's only been in this in Congress for essentially one three terms. Before that, he was a city councilman in El Paso. He loses, but he runs a good he runs a good race, and he gets a lot of support from conservative parts of the state because he's willing to go to those places while promoting a liberal message. He gets a lot of donors from the national political from the national politicians, and a lot of bundlers give him a lot of money because they see him as very formidable, and every, and they hate Ted Cruz. So he he but, well, and that's part of it. He's Ted Cruz is really a boogeyman in the Democratic Party. So a lot of uh, so a lot of people in the Democrat he's a lot of Republicans don't like him, including Mitch McConnell either because he called him a liar. But a lot of people on the left say, well, I want to say you know I, I I want this guy to win. So he loses he, he loses the nomination. I mean, he loses to Ted Cruz. He said during the primary, by the way, that I mean during the election that if he if he got elected, he would serve his full term. And he criticized Ted Cruz, saying that Ted Cruz wouldn't make the prompt that as soon as he got elected in two thousand and twelve, he immediately started running for president. So now it better rocks in the perfect position. He doesn't have a day job. He's got plenty of money because he has because he has a wealthy stepfather. Right. So, I mean, his, he has a wealthy yeah he has a wealthy uh, father-in-law rather. So he can spend all of his time going to New Hampshire while other candidates are doing their job as governor or senator. He can spend all of his time in Iowa, New Hampshire, crisscrossing the state, barnstorming the state all week long. He's in the perfect position, and we learned from Barack Obama and Donald Trump that voters don't care about experience. They care about charisma. They yeah. care about ideology. Sure. They care about electability. So he's learned that lesson, and I think he could have very well. He could have waited. He could have run against John Cornyn in 2020 for when he was running for um, re-election, or he could have run for governor of Texas in 2020, and then used that as a position to become president. But then he would have been seen as more of a career politician. People would have gotten sick of him. He's saying, "This is my time right now. I'm going to use it to run for president." And I think he's seen what happened with Barack Obama. He's yeah. seen what happened with Donald Trump, and he says, "You really get just one opening." And Paul, everything in politics is about timing, essentially. And for him. That's this is this is his this is his time, and yeah. as I say, he doesn't have a day job, so we can spend all of his time in all these states getting media attention every single day. I say go for it. I mean, had yeah, why wouldn't you go for it? William Jennings Bryan ran like three times. Well, yeah, it's fascinating. Why not? Well, here's the thing. Actually, very similar. William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan in 1894. Run. He was he was a two-term member of the House of Representatives from Nebraska. He runs for the Senate, just like Beto O'Rourke did in 96, loses, in 94 rather, loses, but he becomes a cause celeb because he was a liberal Democrat in a conservative party, and they were in the midst of a, of a depression, of the Panic of 1893, a huge depression. In the Democratic Party, there was a lot of um, galvanization to the left that the government should do something. They were angry at Grover Cleveland, the incumbent president. So Winston Bryant, using the fame that he got from that Senate race, goes around the country on a speaking tour. By the time of the convention that year, in 1896, he lands up, um, up becoming the nominee because he talks about the cross of gold. He talks about why we need a more protectionist um, um, uh, trade policy. He talks about why we need more munificent government services, basically giving a liberal mantra. He was 36 years old. And he runs again. So he runs and he gets the nomination, but he loses the presidency. Then he runs again in 1900. And then he run, when he ran the third time in 1908, he lost to William Howard Taft after he said, I'm starting to think those fellows up there don't want me in. <laughs> so I I know I could, I think I could talk to Rich all day long. I know. I mean, he's fascinating. What's next? That's what I want to know. Uh, right now, I'm I'm, do, I'm doing a lot of radio and TV pr- promoting it. So we'll see. We'll see. Do you have another book though somewhere? 
Oh my probably. gosh. Yes, probably. Probably. There's stuff going on so in your much. head. <laughs> you There's not much else in there. <laughs> so we are so thrilled that yeah. you were able to join us and talk to us about politics this and been the a fun, fun side of oh, politics. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. It's a so diversion. <laughs> thank you, Rich, for, for coming on. And uh, yeah, we appreciate it. And, and uh, we'll probably have to have you again as we get closer to, absolutely. to the election. So it'd be fun to come in and have that discussion again. Great. Well, absolutely. But, um, but thank you. Uh, so Rich, well, we have to ask Rich one more question. Chris. Oh. oh, boy. Oh. Chris, we Rich. have to ask him the question. Oh. What's on Rich's nightstand? What's on your nightstand? What, what are you, you reading? reading? <laughs> <laughs> we also I give the names of all of his books. Yes. Uh, actually, and it's something that I do every year, and I usually, it's not so much on the nightstand. I usually do it on the, read it on the elliptical machine, but I read okay. the Almanac of American Politics, okay. and I read it from, it's about 2,000 pages, and I read from, um, I read from Alabama to America, to essentially Wyoming, and I just read, um, yeah, I read the biography of every senator, governor, and House member, and then I, it comes wow. out every two years, hey, so I read the whole thing. Some people read, you know, the I know. Lord of the Rings trilogy every year. Yeah, it's the same out. thing. It's, it's the same thing. Do you have a photographic memory? Because you just No, because I retain, yeah, but I retain certain things. A lot of things I don't retain, okay. too. It's a selective memory, I think. It doesn't know how much milk is. There's a plenty of things that I, I mean, I had a lot of problems memorizing in school. <laughs> a lot of problems yeah, doing it. So um, for some reason, when it's about this specific mm-hmm. subject, I'm good, but in other, a lot of other subjects, you know, I have a lot of problems, yeah. Because yeah. it's what you love. Yeah. It's clearly what he loves. So you need to check out his books. We have Make Every Vote Equal, What a Novel Idea, Political Bible, and Little Known Facts in American Politics, Peculiar Facts, Unusual Facts, Bizarre Facts, Political Firsts. I like it. The Political Bible of Humorous Quotations from American Politics, Politicians Unplugged. Oof, what they say and why. That should be a good one. <laughs> and, and then there's the newest one. And which the newest is... one, American Politics on the Rocks, The Bizarre Side of the American Politics. And it is good. It is, it's fun. It's, it's a lot um, of fun. Yeah, you'll, unusual you'll have... presidential facts. And I like feisty first ladies. <laughs> um, family feuds, debates. You'll have a lot of fun. You'll have a lot of fun. So yeah. this, is, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Yes. And, um, Thank you for joining us. We will call you again. Thank you for joining us here on Book Thank Nation. You. I'm Chris Stevens. I'm Nell Coakley. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Keep reading. Keep reading.